The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. It's time for Caffeinated Comics, a lively discussion and debate on comics, film, television, and collectibles, all fueled by the magic of Frappuccinos. And now, here's your hosts... John and Steven. Thank you, this is Captain Comics, and I'm your host, John Clark. This is a really exciting episode. Doug Drexler is here. Uh, if you don't know who Doug Drexler is, he did makeup on Dick Tracy, he worked on the Orville, he worked on Battlestar Galactica, but he's mostly known for working on Star Trek. He's done Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Enterprise, and now he's on Star Trek Picard. Uh, he's a great guy, fantastic storyteller. And he was willing to talk about what is going on with Picard Season 3, which we are currently obsessed with. Uh, one of the great things about Doug is he's got so many stories that he started telling great stories before we even hit record. So we're just going to jump right in where he's talking about Frankenstein. When they shot Frankenstein in 1933, was on right down to, you know, like 100 feet from our front door when we were doing Galactica. Oh, really? Yeah, that stage is still there where they shot that. Wow, because they did Galactica on the Universal lot. Well, we no, it was shot in Vancouver, mm-hmm. but, and we were up there for a year, but we finally worked it out because you know, I mean, they knew us so well and Ron Moore and those people. We worked it out where we started working down here, on, and oh, we had an office in the Hitchcock Building. Oh wow! And so we did the visual effects. You yeah, know. that was a that show was way ahead of its time. Oh man, it's still you watch it and it's like wow. Yeah, Art, the artist some guys did figures from that too. I remember. I think yeah. they were they were outright diamond like the artist on brand wasn't there, but I remember they did all of those characters. But, yeah, it's an amazing show. I actually, it's amazing how many Star Trek fans haven't given it a shot, and and I know I know the reason why. It's because. Because I felt it myself, you know. I mean, when I was on Enterprise and Firefly came out, they were like our competition. I didn't want to look at them. No, I won't look. Uh, but uh, I eventually did when, when I was on Galactica. Uh, it, uh, our IT guy put the whole series on our system, including uh, the movie uh, Serenity. And while I was working, I ran the entire season and went directly into Serenity. And it's just like it's devastating. When you get to know them so well yeah. in one day and fall in love and to see what happens, you know, it really was an amazing show. Yeah, I did that in a week. My sister was a big Buffy fan. When the DVDs came out, I said, you know, I keep hearing about Firefly. She's like, come over and borrow them. And I watched them from Monday to Friday. Sure. And then on Saturday, she took me to Serenity. And it was the same. Just It just clobbered you. Yeah. Yeah, it really It's devastating. Devastating. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, amazing. So, uh, so I don't want to waste any time because you want to talk about Picard. We want to talk about Picard. Um, talk about anything you want. Well, I mean, <laughs> let me tell I, you about my mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so you, you're the spine of your career, I would say, has been Star Trek, right? You were on Next Gen, you're on DS9, you were on Enterprise. And then, yeah. uh, but then you go and you do other things. Star Trek comes back and it's this different thing. Yeah. And then it's, it's going and there's series after series. They do his first season of Picard. And then Dave Blast calls you up and says, come back. Well, what the funny thing head? about it really was that um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I've had a 42-year career, and I guess it amounts to about 22 years of it being on Star Trek, you know, which is incredible because it's always what I wanted, you know. Uh, but when Enterprise was canceled, I went right to Battlestar Galactica. I mean, it was like Gary pounced on me that night. I, I went home not knowing whether I'd ever work again. I'm thinking, wow, I just worked like 16 or 17 years straight. I'll probably never work again. That's the end of my career. And then I got home and Dorothy meets me at the door and says, there's a message from Gary in Vancouver. And I'm thinking, oh my God, he's going to ask me to come over to Galactica. And sure enough, he did. So I went directly, you know, I hated seeing Star Trek canceled, but it needed to be canceled because I had to go and do Battlestar Galactica and we won Emmys. Yeah. So it's like, it allowed me to go and do that. Meanwhile, J.J. Abrams took over, and if you knew, they were looking to put their own spin on Star Trek, and I totally understand. Everybody wants to do that, you know, uh, put their own spin on something that's, you know, popular, uh, and um, they really weren't in the market for people who knew Star Trek. Uh, that was a that was a count against you if you knew too much about the show where it's been because they want to shake things up a little bit you know so there was a long period where there were a couple of people who worked i mean john eaves got on it but he took everything out of his portfolio that was star trek everything um but so anyway many years have gone by you know i mean it's almost two decades now as we're getting to picard and um I was talking to this geeky guy on Messenger for like a couple of months who we became pretty good friends. Nice guy. Knew all about Star Trek. Showed me a picture of himself in a, uh, you know, one of the movie era maroon outfits, the Prisoner of Zenda outfits. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I find out after all this time, oh, by the way, I'm the production designer on Picard starting in season two. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I didn't know. So, uh, yeah, he, you know, I mean, he, Dave told me that, yes, he always wanted to work on Star Trek and, you know, do starships and stuff. But he told me, he said, but I really wanted to work on it with you guys. That was always my dream because I grew up reading about it and stuff like that. So, you know, he brought me in. We had Eves there. Uh, Okuda, you know, was there. And basically... Uh, they were looking for our approval constantly. Terry Metalis, too, you know, the producer. If he had, you know, uh, tech issues or how something worked or the fleet do it this way, his attitude was, well, Doug, I want you to be happy. Do you think that that's the way it ought to be? And I'll say, yeah, let me write up something. He goes, I'm just going to add a little bit to it. This is it. It was the opposite, total opposite on the Orville. I, I couldn't even write a line on a label this big without someone having to approve it really yeah on on star trek the old ones and picard it was pretty much uh they totally wanted us to do what we thought was right you know uh and and every producer whether it be seth mcfarlane or terry metallis uh, a show is their kingdom and they have a right to do it any way they want you know if they want to look at every single thing and say, nothing is anything until I say it is. So 
if I'm doing backlits of systems and stuff, it's all numbers. I, I, I'm, I, I'm not allowed to figure out how the systems work, mm -hmm. which we did on Star Trek all the time. And there's a strata of fans who love that, the work that we put into that. Because part of the fun is sussing it out and how does it work? And did they think it out, you know? Uh, there's a certain sport that happens in fandom to trip you up, find out where you went wrong or you didn't think about it, try to spring something on you and that you won't have the answer for, <laughs> mm. which is great because they're in, that makes them interested and it, and they love that type of, uh, you know, tech. They want to know when, when you do have an answer for them, they're so happy that you had an answer, but they're also happy if they trip you up, <laughs> Yeah, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, it's interesting that ecosystems between the shows, I mean, I've known Terry since he was an assistant on Voyager and Enterprise and he used to hang out in the art department with us. And he was, he knows Star Trek. He knows, he understands it better, I think, than anybody who's done any of the new shows. And it's, and it's showing. I mean, people are really, I, I haven't seen one loved this much across the board and forever you know and i haven't seen it at any time since jj took over no no i mean we're only three episodes into season three and just everybody i mean ourselves included everybody's just been in love with it and the first two seasons of Picard, I think, were a little more polarizing. I personally really liked them, but a lot of people just didn't feel the tone was right, and those people have really come around. Well, yes. Well, I mean, the thing is, it's very similar to um, what happened with Galactica when we did Caprica. Yeah. People were expecting killer robots and explosions, and, and what do they do? They get, they fought, there's a story about, um, you know, the little girl, the teenage girl's consciousness and the robot and the teenage angst and religion. And they're all going, what the hell? This isn't what I watched Battlestar Galactic before. But I understand it because after doing all those years of kick-ass action, the writers are going, well, I want to score a hit with something that's more talky. Right. We're not doing visual effects and stuff. And that was a mistake. It's the same, same kind of thing, you know? Um, uh, I could see where Patrick Stewart would be totally taken and mesmerized by the idea of looking at Picard from this other view, you know, where he's running a vineyard and he's coming to terms. And I think it's really fascinating. I just don't think it's what fans were expecting. For me, I'm okay with that. And I find it enjoyable. I'm missing the outer space stuff. We finally get back to it. So that's all great. But the, the, the mind blower for me was the first two episodes of season two, it started off amazing. You had this, you saw the stargazer. It was gorgeous. Fans are going, oh, this is like what we used to love. And then after the second episode, they go to LA. And yeah, there's car chases for like six episodes. I was just like, is, uh, I actually thought it was pretty good. But it's not really what I'm hoping for. You know, I want to see starships and, and, and Terry knew that, you know. And so when he was finally in a position to really run it the way he wanted to, he got back to basics, you know, which everyone's thrilled about. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, Terry, man, he's, 
they put together a show that builds from episode to episode and something grab will grab you in each one you know uh it's very carefully i mean did you see 12 monkeys yeah bits of it yeah you know i mean that was terry i mean that's some complicated i'm gonna have to watch it several times to figure it out you know because of the time travel elements you know but uh he understands star trek and he's put he put together he understands i mean it's like just listen to the music terry knows all these how many of these people who are doing Star Trek now could say, I need that little bit about 30 seconds in on the Mutara Nebula or uh, Enterprise leaving dry dock or stealing the Enterprise or, you know, Terry knows all the musical cues. And he's like, I want to evoke the same feeling here. I need this beat. And it's all through the show. You're not just getting the characters back that you love. You're getting back one of the things that I always missed, like in the first movie. The Star Trek fanfare is like very grudgingly in there, you know, for just like a captain's mm -hmm. log, only like this long. And it's like, why? The music is part of the, you know, the, the music's a star too, you know? And uh, so, I mean, just look at, look at the score and, 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 and the things that they planted in there. And holy Yeah, God. I was surprised how much of the score he's pulling from the movies. Yeah, which I've never seen in any show. No, it's, it's always been like the movies were one thing, the TV shows were another thing. Even when it was the same cast, and just yeah. to hear like he's closing every episode with the first contact theme. Yeah, oh, it's magnificent. And look at the title sequence with the L cars at the end. Yeah, is yeah, the, the guy in charge of the show or what? Yet the Wrath of Khan font on the episode titles. Fabulous. With the same, no, with the same uh, pulsing star field. Yeah, it, um, you know, it has the DNA that a lot of people, look, there are a lot of people who like the shows, the other shows, but there is this strata, I think an even larger strata of uh, audience who feels underserved, that they haven't been given what they've wanted to see. And they feel, you know, I mean, we have, there's a large number of Star Trek fans who love memorizing when and where things happen and they want you to stick to it they invested the time to learn it and now you're telling me that we're just throwing that away you know uh that you can get fans upset i mean there's a lot of fans out there who invested a lot of money in books and you know they don't you can't be shaking it up like that because once you've done that it's kind of like betraying the trust uh, of people who've invested so much time into loving it, you know. Right, and I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that because obviously you guys are part of that, a, a part of bring that legacy, that history. You guys are part of the stars that made Star Trek what it was, certainly during the Berman era. So bringing back the des design aesthetic, I'm really interested in how you guys hit that balance because you are doing a season three of a show and you are doing a show that sits next to Strange New World and Discovery which had a very different design aesthetic. It was closer to JJ than it was to well Berman. with you guys coming in and doing things like the Titan, the stargazer, where are you dropping the needle between not, not breaking between, what you right before, but feeling like when you guys were doing it the first time. In our speaking for myself, they're another universe. We're not in the same universe with discovery. We're not in the same universe with uh, Stranger Worlds. Those are, it's the, it's the multiverse of madness. 
you know, until I real, I said to myself, okay, it's got to be a multiverse because nothing is lining up anymore. And if I look at it from the point of view that they just don't care, so they change everything, that makes me mad. <laughs> but if I look at it as, okay, it's Star Trek, it's science fiction, it's meant to be stretched and pulled and, you know, so do as many different kinds of Star Treks as you want, you know? Uh, but in my opinion, Picard is not part of any of those other shows. Picard is part, especially season three, which is a whole new show. Let's face it. It is an entire, even the title sequence. Yeah. It's a different show. They, it's, we're a different going season song, three, it's a different really not. It's like a whole nother, you know, um, it's really, it's really, it's amazing. Uh, so uh, Picard season three is directly connected to the TNG we watched in the nineties, directly connected. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, as far as the ships and the tech and the aesthetic, we're just, uh, you know, following a through line that has gone since like 1987, oh, 1966. I mean, even, you know, next generation was very influenced by the original series. They always, it, it was always, everyone knew that it was the same universe. The idea that it was a different universe didn't, you know, everything was carefully thought out. And I mean, you had Roddenberry there and Bob Justman in the very beginning who were, you know, original series people. Um, but I'm blathering. <laughs> That's the point of it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute, is that, uh, do you want me to blather? Because I don't have. That much I've, I've got to. I've got to ask. Um, yeah. I mean, for, first off, uh, like I, I just watched the third episode of, of Picard, and then I watched Ready Room afterwards, and they were talking about the design of the Shrike yeah. uh, for that episode. And I'm telling you, your name got dropped so many times. <laughs> But Jonathan Frakes forgot about me later on, though. Did you see that? <laughs> that that yeah. is creative. Not that is creative. Like to get this big compliment. It's like, yeah, but there, here's the insult in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like you know, smack and <laughs> whack. And, to, and the thing that gets me is that, you know, he mentions Eves and Okudo. Oh, those guys only did one thing for him. I did his makeup. <laughs> a next generation. Oh. And did ship designs and stuff like that. How do you forget me? <laughs> but I mean, oh, I can't. I, uh, I mean, listen, uh, when Dustin Hoffman won for Rain Man, he forgot to thank Tom Cruise. And he was so embarrassed. So you, you just never know when you're going to have a brain fart or something like that. Jonathan knows, knows me. I mean, uh, I had came up, come up to the set and, you know, he'd run up and grab me and call me Dougie. He knows who I am. But just at that moment, it just like the, you know. <laughs> I was like, it's, it's just to me. Well, you talk about like leaving, uh, you know, when Enterprise ended, you thought you're not you're not going to work again. But uh, it, it, I know you're you, you're a very humble guy. But I mean, looking at this, what's it like now knowing that you're the kind of guy that people drop your name now? They talk about <laughs> it's you know. Well, we it's what. Doug, Doug Drexler wanted. It's like, oh, we talked to him about it. And you know, I often think that I must be laying on the side of the road after an automobile accident, bleeding out at the age of 15. <laughs> because it's like, well, how can this be? How could this possibly be? Not, not only get to work on Star Trek, but in so many facets of it. Oh my God. I mean, 
it's one thing to do something the whole time, you know, you, you do visual effects all the way through. I like hopped all over the place. And, um, you know, I just, uh, uh, the beauty of a show like that, where you're together for so long, uh, you actually have the opportunity to slide sideways into another department. They already know you, they've seen your work, they know that you can be counted on. And so that's how I ended up in visual effects. And that's how I ended up, you know, in scenic with Mike and then, you know, uh, illustrator after a while. Um, it, it, <laughs> you know, plus, I mean, if you just look at my makeup career, which I only was 12 years, I guess, 12, 13 years I did makeup. If that was all I had done, that's not too bad. We won an Academy Award. You know, I could stop right there. <laughs> but uh, you came into Star Trek doing makeup, right? Well, yeah. I mean, we came out and done everything. We were East Coast, you know, like Dick Smith. Mm. And uh, we always knew we wanted to come out to, you know, Los Angeles. But we didn't want to come out here looking for a job. We wanted to have a job that would bring us here. And um, uh, we had worked with... Um, uh, you know, John was on Cotton Club with Francis Ford Coppola, where he met Milana Cannonero, who was a costume designer, and uh, there was the production designer there, Dick Silbert. And uh, we had worked with uh, 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 John uh, John Landau, who's the producer on Avatar. He's like James Cameron's guy now. Uh, we worked on him with him on a number of pictures. And, uh, when they were starting to put Dick Tracy together, these people said to Warren, well, why don't you look, talk to these young guys? They're hungry. And not only that, though, I mean, um, we were not the guys you would count on getting Dick Tracy. I mean, even Dick Smith said, oh, you'll never get Dick Tracy. They'll get Rick Baker or they'll get Greg Canham or, you know, one of the superstars, Rob Bottin. And uh, but he didn't count on Warren uh, not wanting to deal with that, you know, I mean, I, I can't say this for sure, but I'm thinking probably Rick Baker gets a million bucks just for himself, you know, when he takes a job. You know? Rick Baker could also tell Warren Beatty, I don't want to do that to you. Yeah, right. You know, so we're going to, we're going to, and that could be part of it, but we were also a different flavor. And, um, you know, Silbert was the production designer who is like royalty. Uh, was a New York, he came from New York and he remembered when he first got out here how the unions were up in arms saying, well, why are you bringing this New York guy? There's people here who need to work. You know? So uh, having other core people who were from New York kind of helped too as well. But uh, we got the job. And then I remember Dick Smith said, well, maybe you got the job, but you'll never lift a brush on stage. You'll just do the lab work. Because the head of the union, a guy named Howard Smith, that everyone was terrified of. And actually, I think in like 1987 or something, a union member shot him. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but a union member shot him coming out of a meeting. He survived. Uh, Deliberately? So, yes, because he there were people who didn't like him, you know. Dick Smith said he's a monster. <laughs> and But once again, he didn't count on the power of Warren Beatty. You know, Beatty was very powerful. And uh, Dick Tracy was one of the biggest shows in town. Everybody was going to be in it. And um, Warren hadn't decided whether it was going to be a union show or a non-union show. And he's smart to hold it back because that's a bargaining chip. You know? And, uh, of course, the union wants it. 
and Horn says, okay, I've decided it's going to be a union show, but I need these two guys. And so the next thing you know, Howard Smith is driving out to our lab in Van Nuys, bringing us our applications like this. <laughs> and Dick Smith was like, <laughs> how did that happen? But I mean, really, my whole career has been like that. How did that happen? You know, I've been working on my memoir, which is pretty girthy already. And uh, I look back through it. And some of the stories are like, did this really happen? <laughs> crazy, crazy stuff, you know. But really working on Star Trek, getting to design enterprises and starships. And uh, that is like a crowning thing for me, you know, even even more than the Oscar. I, that was hard to make that come out, but. <laughs> oh, you don't hear even more than the Oscar very often. Yeah, I mean, it's like, hmm, hmm which one means more? Oscar means a lot, carries more weight in the overall picture. But as far as my little kid growing up, I wanted to work on Star Trek. You know, I didn't think there would ever be a Star Trek after the original was canceled. Right. No, no one did for at least it was a failed years. TV show. Yeah, it was. And it was a failed pilot of a second TV show. Yeah. So, well, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with. According to Cushman's book, Cushman, right? He claims that the Nielsen ratings, which are sealed, that you can look at now, that Star Trek did really well in all of its time slots, even on Friday night, which was a bad, bad time to have a show. Um, but Gene, I think some of it has to do with Gene being difficult, mm. hard to work with, fight for an idea, you know, and uh, I mean, he organized the fans. He always denied it at the time, but organized the fans, you know to rebel against NBC, you know, and made them out like they were the enemy, you know. Um, but if you read, you know, if those books are all true, uh, there yeah, are lots a of lot in 50 years of Star Trek about Gene. Oh, well, uh, you know, the 50 years of Star Trek, I just breezed over that, you know. Um, was it? Yeah, these are the voyages. It's yeah. like a three book set. Yes. He's got memos in there from NBC. I can't remember the name of the guys, Ben Johnson or I, I don't, I, these notes were good. These were, I thought, I thought, wow, that's a great idea. Oh, those are, you know, and I can remember as a kid getting letters from, you know, Lincoln Enterprises and stuff, you know, in the sixties, making them out to be knuckleheads and, you know, uh, but it worked for him because if you make your fans feel like you're being mistreated and these bad people don't want you to have what you want, you'll rise up and you'll pick it at NBC and Burbank and stuff like that. It was really smart, you know? Yeah, it's a lot of what, like what Stan Lee was doing in the 60s. Cause, uh, oh, Stan Lee. There was, a, there was a great story that he was on a radio show with Jack Kirby and said, you know, well, DC can I do all this, but Marvel has to do this. And when they went to commercial, Jack went... We're not selling DC. Why are you saying all this? He's like, it helps if you're the underdog. Yes, I heard the story slightly, slightly different. I think that Stan was, um, the way I heard it was that Stan was talking about how their sales were low and compared to the other, you know, and, and Jack's like, why are you telling them that? We're doing great. We're doing better than them. You know, people liked an underdog. I cried when Stan died. Yeah. Um, he really meant a lot to me. Did you ever hear my Stan Lee stories? Please tell it right now. <laughs> Two of my favorite stories. Of course, I idolize him. I don't think anyone compares to Stan Lee. I don't care who it is. Look at all the stuff that came out of that guy. 
Gene Roddenberry did Star Trek. That's really cool. But yeah, <laughs> you know? when you got into Star Trek, was Gene still there or had he passed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I started in the beginning of season three. Okay. So I think he was, um, yeah. I mean, I talked to him on stage, you know, I, there was, but um, so, oh yeah. So my, this, my Stan Lee story, I don't want to forget that because um, my mother hated that I read comic books and so did my father because, you know, comics in the 40s were considered for, you know, imbeciles. And uh, in the 50s, they were called communist and trying to, you know, uh, seduction of the innocent, you know. Uh, and so to my parents, comic books were bad. They didn't want me reading comic books and they threw away a lot of my comics too. Um, so in like 76, we opened a store in Manhattan called the Federation Trading Post, a Star Trek store, a Star Trek store of all things at 53rd and 3rd. Um, and uh, actually it wasn't doing well at first. And then we saved up money and had like a 15 second still frame over the outer limits, I think it was or something at night. And next day there was a line down the block. But that went on for quite some time. And we built a museum in the back that had a Matt Jeffrey shaped door. And we had like a six foot Klingon ship and we had actual uniforms and props and things. And uh, I had a press, we had a press opening for it. And you're in Manhattan, you know, everyone's right there. You could send letters to NBC, CBS, and you know, it's only a few blocks away. And I sent an invite to Stan and he came. And my mother was there. And I introduced my mother to Stan Lee, the guy whose comics she made me throw away and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, this is Stan Lee. And she says, I want you to know that you had more to do with raising my son than I did. <laughs> and Stan says, the last woman who told me that her son was in Sing Sing. <laughs> <laughs> so we all laughed and, and he was great. You know, I mean, I've never... I'd been up to his office after that and he was always what you wanted him to be. I mean, you know, the sign of someone with charisma is someone who makes you feel like the most important person in the room. And he always did that, you know, no matter who he talked to. William Shatner's like that too. Mm. But, um, um, so many years later, maybe it was 10 years ago, Barbara Luna, the captain's woman, she helps run these autograph shows where they have all these actors from TV shows and Playboy bunnies and stuff like that. And uh, I always, she always invites me down and Stan was uh, in the green room uh, and he's signing posters and he's going like it, the energy energizer bunny. I mean, he just like the energy of this guy. And so we stopped and chatted with him and took pictures and, and, uh, and I had a, a conversation with him. I said, Stan, I just want to tell you a story about when, we had the Federation trading post and you came in and you met my mother and, and I told him the whole story and he cracked up when he heard what he said. <laughs> and uh, I told him he was my, he was my surrogate father. I just want you to know you were my surrogate father. And uh, so anyway, conversation went on and he started having to talk to other people about a half an hour goes by and his handler comes in and says, Stan, uh, we have to take you over to the terminal and get you on your plane. And it's, you know, like I said, it's been about a half an hour and he's, how old was he? Had to be 90 or something. And I'm thinking, I, he sees so many people, he, I'd say something to him, but he probably barely remembers a conversation we just had, you know, because he's talked to so many people. Mm 
And I'm watching him go out. And as he goes out, he reaches for the doorknob and he stops, turns around, finds me and says, goodbye, my surrogate son. <laughs> so, you know, Stan was always, always what you wanted. He's taking grief from some fans, you know. I mean, yes, Jack Kirby and, you know, Steve Ditko and all, Don Heck and, you know, all those people were really important. But I don't think any of them take them and let them write their own story. And it won't have the sizzle that Stan Lee put in it. I mean, Jack went and did his own books like New Gods and it was like... Yeah, there's a lot of good ideas in there, but there's almost no stories in there. Yeah, it's just just, a lot of concepts. Yeah, I know he's a great concept guy, but if you want dialogue, you know, that sizzles and engages Mm -hmm. you, and that's what made the the first bunch of Marvel movies so great, you know. Yeah, and that's that's what I I always said. There there are people that say, well, Jack Kirby did everything. I was like, well, Jack Kirby didn't do Spider Man. (laughs) And, you know, like, there's a commonality between. Between the Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, and it's not the arts. Yeah, I, well, Stan was the thread between yeah. all that stuff. You know, I mean, Jack was the art director of all those books. You know, but uh, uh, and I, Jack Kirby's. I mean, he's like astonishing the power. And you know, for me, you got to mix them up with the right anchor mm-hmm. and the right the the person writing the dialogue, like Stan. I always thought Joe Sinnott was the best guy for Jack Kirby. Oh, those, those Fantastic Four issues with the yeah, three best. Especially when Sinnott comes on like about in the 40s. Yeah, I mean, it was like Coletta for a while and he's too scratchy, you know. Yeah, he smoothed Kirby's, he smoothed Kirby's rough edges without, without lowering him down. Well, I mean, you look at the stuff that came when he went to DC and he found mm-hmm. an inker who inked him exactly the way he drew, Mike Royer. Yeah, Mike Royer, yeah. Did a great job, but the figures look like dolls because... Uh, uh, Senate smoothed those people out and made them more realistic, yeah, and able to relate to, you know. Um, but yeah, those are my. I mean, I try to. It's always been so unfair that the fountainhead of Marvel was the Fantastic Four. That's where it really began. Mm-hmm. I, I used to tell Dorothy, you go, because she didn't read comics, but became a big fan of that first bunch of movies, and I'm like. Everything you're looking at here started in the Fantastic Four, you know, that Iron Man, who is more like a B-level character who I loved, uh, you know, I mean, the Fantastic Four were like A-level stars, you know. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a comic book artist. I'm glad I wasn't. (laughs) It's a hard life. It's not a lot of money. No. I mean, and I know guys who I idolize that they weren't, they were just making it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, my parents had moved out to Long Island and Marvel was in Manhattan. And I figured, well, you know, a lot of these guys live out on the island. So I got the phone books out and I started looking for artists. And I found Don Heck, uh, was about a half a mile from me. And I called him and I, uh, he let me come to his house, you know, once a week with my drawings and he'd throw a piece of tracing paper over them and show me where I went wrong. And I, I, you know, see, it was also knowing who to put on, uh, uh, putting Don Heck and he gets like no credit. I don't think in the Iron Man movies, mm-hmm. um, to me, he's the guy who defined Iron Man and made Tony Stark, this cosmopolitan kind of Clark Gable kind of celebrity that was a cross between Howard Hughes and 
you know, that pencil thin mustache and he drove a cool Mercedes, you know, and um, that was Don Heck. And Don Heck, Marvel had been using uh, a lot on romance comics because he drew beautiful women and handsome men. And if you're going to do Tony, if you're going to do Iron Man, you need someone who could do beautiful women and handsome men, you know. Uh, so I always loved him and I always felt that he is what made, I mean, the first issue was Don, you know, when they're in mm. the jungles and it's just fabulous. Uh, I, I owe him a lot. Um, um, oh, uh, John, help me. He took over from Kirby. Kirby left. John um, Buscema. Buscema lived about three miles from me. And I called him and he let me come to his house. And he lived like in Port Jefferson or around that area. And I sat with him and Don was the one I saw the most, you know, cause he was very close to me. And, you know, he was, a, I guess he was divorced. You know, the house looked like it, a bachelor had been living in it, <laughs> comic books all over the floor and, you know, but uh, yeah, I'm really grateful for that. I, you know, I was lucky to grow up there uh, because, you know, I would go up to Man Magazine you know, and mm -hmm. see Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein and people like that, you know, go up to, you know, I, I actually had started doing a Marvel tech manual way long time ago and uh, brought the pages I had up to st show Stan. And he was like, how can I steal this from you? <laughs> but I, I needed like uh, photo stats of art. And he was like, give this guy whatever he wants. Never charged me anything, you know. Um, so it was great to be, uh, you know, around the print world stuff, which was so big uh, at that time, you know, through the 60s and 70s. And, you know, you want to come here? You want to see who these guys are? My parrot. <laughs> I've had them for 42 years. Wow. Well, they live to like 100. No, I want to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it. Die. Die already. <laughs> There's no escape. <laughs> Call the police. <laughs> <laughs> so Doug, before we get too far away from Picard, I um I really wanted to ask you about the design of the Titan, especially the bridge, because we know that it was also the Stargazer. So I'm wondering when you guys started that, was it like we need to design two bridges that have the same elements, or was yeah. it like we designed we designed the Titan, now make it the Stargazer? Yeah, uh, I think that for a while there, it was going to be Stargazer all the way through. Mm. Uh, and I think that they had to swap the bridge out. It was a last minute decision. Um, I think that Terry was wise to do that because the Stargazer is a big muscular ship mm. and should be able to turn around and have a pretty good accounting of itself dealing with the Shrike, although Shrike has superpowers. Uh, the Titan is like a second level ship. You know, uh, Captain Shaw is a second level captain, you know, yeah. and he knows uh, it and he knows it. And I, I love him, man. He's awesome. I mean, the dinner was hilarious and so brilliantly acted. And it, I, I mean, I'm wow. so expected to hate him and I just don't No, you, you and you won't. That's the beauty of it. Um, I get a lot of people who say he's such a dick. How can you like him? I'm going, well, you're looking at him as a person. I'm looking at him as a performance, this amazing mm -hmm. performance, the timing and the, you know, and the way it's planned out, he's already started eating, you know, and they're not late, you know, it's right, right, right away. It's like, you know, shoving it up there. Power move. And then he gives him the, oh, Chateau Picard, terrific. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
that's the kind of stuff that you can't really put in the script. That's an mm -hmm. actor. Um, yeah, I, lo I love this moment when you know Riker's going to become the captain, if not Picard. But I love when that moment happens because you figure, all right, he's going to blow up. He's going to be unconscious. And he just gets injured and points right at Riker. And he's like, you got us into this. You, yeah. you get us out of it. And yeah. I, I've never seen that kind of move in Star Trek before. Like, they, And they used just the right amount of blood. You know he was he was hurt. Yeah. The, the blood that ran off his face. Um, yeah. it's. I mean, yes, there were things in it that you're expecting but you're not disappointed when it is what you expected. A lot of people, you know, figured that that was going to be Picard's son, you know, but it's not like a monster secret, yeah. you know, that's going to change anything. I, I, uh, uh, I was satisfied because everything around it, the dressing and the storytelling and the acting, you know, for the same reason you love the original series when there were cardboard cutouts outside the window. You know, because it was just so done with such heart, and um, and you could tell there was a lot of love going on there. Uh, that you'll you'll go along, you like it, you go along with it, you know. Um, and there's still surprises to come. Yeah, and then, now knowing what the story was, did that help you guys stay stay motivated in the design work? Or how much did you how much did you know about that story? If you're working on the Titan, do you know? Well, got to do this and. If, we had all the scripts, but I mean, the thing is that, um, you know, you never do one of these ships by yourself. You know, the people mm -hmm. say, well, uh, you know, this was designed by, yeah, I know, but you're also working with the producer, Terry, the production designer, and even like when I did the NX or the J, I was pretty much just me. Mm -hmm. I really, I got very few notes on those things. This show was, there was more because we had more people involved we, you know there was bill there was dave blast there was john eaves uh thomas marone and the guys from uh star trek online who i respect and i like what they do um you know would thrash things out uh and john would do little sketches and i would start blocking things out and you know as a cg mesh and there was a certain point where uh it was it was in my hands now because i was building the mesh uh, every, every ship in season three went through me before it w I made an approval model based on everything we talked about, everything we looked at, make an approval model. I could send it to Terry. Terry could say, eh, it needs a, you know, I go back and try to interpret those hand motions, <laughs> you know? Um, uh, so that's the last step before it goes to visual effects. Then visual effects is going to add their own, they're probably going to rebuild the mesh completely because uh, I, I could see little differences in, in my mesh and, and what they did mm. um, but that's that's there's a certain interpretation that happens um I, you know i'm putting in basic plating because plating design is really important on a starfleet ship if you don't give them a guide it could end up being kind of in you know nd plating but plating needs to tell a story you know uh, but when it comes down to the little refractive hits of light and you know, specularity bounces and, you know, the way light is playing across the surface and uh, that's visual effects goes in and really tweaks that stuff. I don't have, I don't have time for that. My, I mean, I think that uh, Titan was done pretty fast uh, because we thought it was going to be Stargazer and mm. Terry had seen a design that he liked on the internet uh, that Bill Krause had done uh, uh, of a ship called Shangri-La. Uh, um, 
I had been using Bill in the ships of the line calendar for the last seven years, you know, so I always brag, I discovered him. Uh, but uh, so what Terry wanted to do <clears throat> was to take that design and put it through the Picard filter. You know, um, you know, we had established uh, a uh, on Stargazer, a certain type of nacelle that we wanted to carry across the fleet uh, for ships that were made in that period. The, the, the proportions are a little different, but it's the same technology because they were both built about the same time. Um, uh, but, but to put it through the, uh, uh, the filter and make sure everything was there uh, when visual effects gets it, that there's phaser strips and phaser turns and, you know, uh, uh, you know, the core ejection system is there. You could look, fans want to look and, and go, okay, so where's this? Where's that? Let's see if they miss this. And, and they want to catch you, but if they find out that you thought about it, they're really happy because they feel respected, you know? Yeah, one of the things I liked about the design was that it, it tends, it's almost going back to the movie era where uh, the Titan, you can see the different levels on the side of the dish. You can see like, all right, there, there looks like there's five decks there. And I haven't seen that really since the Enterprise A. Yeah, well, you know, the, a lot of people have said, well, why would they pull out a side wheeler, you know? So why would Starfleet build an old design? And, and um, you know, in the Picard era, we, we were seeing Excelsior-class ships. We were seeing Grissom-class ships. We were seeing uh, uh, Reliant-class ships, Saratoga. Those designs are from the movie era. How come nobody cares about that? Isn't that an issue? Well, no, it really isn't. And I told people, it all boils down to mission envelope. Uh, uh, if something looks like it's from another era, does that mean it's not useful technology anymore? No, because- it's like a Cadillac. Well, well, I mean, you have proven designs that work well for certain things. And I pointed out, it, did you see Top Gun Maverick? Yeah, did you like it? Yeah. Did you notice that when they were on their mission heading in, that they were in touch with a picket plane, like an AWAC plane? It had propellers. Why would they use a plane with propellers? That's old-fashioned technology. It's not 1945. Because it's not that simple, you know? Uh, so there are certain things that <clears throat> that class of vessel did better than any other, you know? And you could use that. Uh, so for me, it's like, uh, first of all, Terry loves the motion picture era. Mm. And he really wanted something that went away, that started to pull itself back from that elongated uh, saucer section that really started with Voyager. Right. And, know, and, and then the E. And then the E. And I'm not really a big fan of that. I always love the juxtaposition of the saucer instead of making it a submarine shaping, you know? Uh, I, I like the rounder saucer. Terry does too, you know? Um, so I, I'm glad to see, uh, you know, Stargazer having it closer to a round saucer and getting away from that elongated, you know. Um, so what were we talking about? Well, thinking <laughs> of the saucer design, okay. Yeah. And this, this takes me back to the first episode of Picard. You know, you have that scene when Riker and, and Sean Luke are having a drink. It's Federation Day. And they're talking about all the little, the little. The fat uh, one. Yeah, nobody the fat, thank you. Okay. 
So That's I do not appreciate them fat shaming the enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you said something. <laughs> well, I do like the D an awful lot. I don't know why I think I don't know why anybody would not want that one. <laughs> I think well, I feel like I was I was never a, that big a fan of the D. It always seemed wide, but I realized looking back now, it's one of the most iconic ones. Oh, it's because, uh, because the yeah. series is so beloved. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like got so many stories attached to it now. Yeah, and uh, it's a thought out design, you know. Uh, and it looks, I, I heard nothing but complaints about it when the show first opened, you know. Uh, well, there were nothing compl but complaints about everything when Next Gen first started. Yeah, uh, yeah, oh, they hated nobody like anything. Hard and you know, I mean, I saw the potential right away, I was so impressed by the sets, and I mean, the graphics blew me away. Uh, they were Matt Jeffrey's graphics on the original series looked serious. Uh, they, they were believable. And I think that it's real easy to do science fiction uh, uh, graphics that look like baloney, that they don't look like they're telling you anything important at all. Mike's stuff had this amazing sense of organization. And you really believe that it because so much thought was put into it in its look and its layout that you were pretty sure it was doing something important. And when I came on board Next Generation and I was spending, you know, God awful hours on stage, which was okay by me, um, I was looking at all those sets and graphics and stuff like really close, examining them, you know? And I found out who is this Mike Okuda guy? Because the closer you looked at the graphics, the more clever and thoughtful they were, you know? you could. You could follow that flow chart. That was one of the things I really loved about uh, Polar Motion before they had monitors. Mm -hmm. They had that wheel that turned behind that had polarized material that created a sense of energy moving. And to have these big, long panels that you could follow a flow chart was really amazing. Uh, I, I All I knew is that, uh, you know, I, I guess for about three years, I was pretty regular at working with Mike Westmore. But I really wanted to go to the art department. Really wanted to go to the art department. Yeah, well, the, uh, the L cars. I mean, I know that was a big thing, uh, bringing that back. People it's, loved it, right? Yeah, it's like Mike didn't just create a design. He created an operating system. Like, yeah. that, that's a UX design. Hey, listen. You ask anybody to draw the footprint of any other science fiction interface. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you they won't be able to do one of them. But if you ask them to do L cars, they probably, even if they can't draw a straight line, can do it. Yeah. And that's why to this day, you see it on people's phones, you see it on their backgrounds, on their computers. Any of the others? No. Nope. Mike really did something amazing. I admire yeah. him so much for that. Yeah, so it's up there with like Apple at, <laughs> in terms of just timelessness. <laughs> Apple? Apple at, at a certain point, not now. <laughs> You put the apple. What was that cartoon with the apple label on a teapot? You ever see that? No. If it's just a regular teapot, everyone yeah. in you know in the auditorium is like this. Then you put the apple logo, and I'm like, yay! <laughs> <laughs> it's a cult. I started on uh, Mac. I used the Mac for eight years. Mm -hmm. Eight years, yeah, until I got into visual effects. And the Mac is not the machine you want to be using because. Uh, because it it's a closed architecture and mm. 
all the really interesting plugins are happening in the window systems because you're allowed to play with it. Uh, so if you wanted to use all kinds of interesting plugins for visual effects, you couldn't get them on Apple. Plus you get more bang for your buck, uh, you know, with the PC. Yeah. Um, what were we talking about? <laughs> oh, yeah. Hold on. That, I, I wanted you to make a point. You forget what it was. I know. You were talking about saucer design. That's yeah, what we were, we're talking about. about fat shaming the enterprise. <laughs> oh, well, you know. Yeah. Um, here's, here's my, uh, now this is the nerd question. I, I did this. I did this on our last podcast with a rep from Luke, a former rep from Lucasfilm. This had to do with Indiana Jones. And he was like, Elliot, I have no idea. So I'm going to give you a similar type of question. Okay. <laughs> if I don't know it, I'll make something up. Yeah, make something up. There you go. <laughs> so, here's my thing. Okay. We know that the transporter has reproduced uh, uh, Will Riker. So, so you had Thomas Riker and Will Riker. And it even made, on, on lower decks, it made a second Boimler. Okay. Why can't the transporter be used to make another data? Because everyone kept talking about how data is so special. Well, I think they've done it before. I mean, um, as a, uh, I think that really, honestly, they're disintegrating you and recreating you on the Enterprise, you know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly. my worry about transporters is I don't think they can transport anybody. I think they can kill you and clone you. Exactly. That's hey. all they do. It's invasion yeah. of the body snatchers. Yeah, they're not taking your molecules apart and shooting them across space. <laughs> well, I mean, McCoy always said they were, but it doesn't really make sense. It makes more sense to kill you <laughs> and recreate you someplace else. That's what the stoners on Breaking Bad said. Remember <laughs> the episode of Breaking Bad where they said, oh, look, check it out. It's like well, you're dying and they're just reproducing you elsewhere. So I never understood. Again, that's always been a little plot hole for me. Like, did you ever read Spock Must Die? No, I did not. I read it as a James Blish novel. It, yeah, it dealt Blish. with that. It oh. dealt with that. I read it in like 1968. So. Yeah, my dad had a bunch of the uh, paperbacks sitting on the porch, and that was one of them. He... He was into Star Trek before I was into it. And then when I got into it, he got out of it. <laughs> so he took me to Wrath of Khan. The and universe then, is in balance. And then when Next Gen started, he was like, nah, I'm done with this. <laughs> really? Yeah. You know, every time I think, you know, I thought I was done with it when I first started getting interested in girls. But uh, I guess I wasn't. <laughs> you want to see these guys? Come here. Here he is. Oh, look at that guy. That's 45. 42. 42. He's trouble, boy. Yeah. Where's the Gen Xer? Runs my freaking life. <laughs> What's his name again? Beaker. Like the Muppet. Ah, uh, like the Muppet. Uh, yeah. Sorry, buddy. So out of everything on Picard, what are you what are you the proudest of? What are you the most excited for people to see? What are you what are you like? Well, some things I'm so I glad I got to do yet. this. There's some things I can't talk about yet. Well, yeah, they're going to be people are going to love, love, love. Yeah. So, so basically, what it is we haven't seen yet. Uh, well, no, I mean, I really love the Stargazer. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, you know, I liked the Titan and another ship, but um. Even though all those ships went through me, there's some ships that I actually I had more input on. You know. Uh, designing or building. I mean, the Stargazer is one. Uh, Elios with John Eves. John and I love each other, and to work together has been 
one of the dreams we've talked about over the last 20 years of not working together, you know, wouldn't it be great to, and Dave Blass is smart, you know, he knows that we get along like a house of fire and cracking each other up and, you know, we're perfect team to work together. Um, there's some stuff I can't wait for people to see. Um, and, and I guarantee you that some of it is, a lot of it is as exciting as everything you've seen so far. I mean, there's some great stuff coming. <laughs> I can't wait to hear, see the reactions. Yeah, the one thing I keep seeing on uh, social media is I, I can't remember the last time I had to wait every Thursday. That was me. I said that yeah. everywhere. <laughs> because I used to count the minutes yeah. until the next Thursday. Because the first season, it was on Thursday nights. This last episode, it felt like time stopped the whole time it was on. I had no idea how long the episode even was. See, that's great. And then when it ended, I was like, oh, my God, how long are we going to have to wait? And, you know, and visual effects is doing some really beautiful work, too. You know, um, uh, there's little things here and there I would do a little differently. Uh, of course, that's the way it always is. You know, faults with the show. I, I think it's a little underlit. I was I was thinking that myself. I wanted to talk to you about that. Well, I know we talked more about the outside of ships, but it seems like the aesthetic on the inside is very dark, and it well, reminds me of a lot of the other Paramount Plus shows. Whereas Next Gen was, you know, very lit. Well, and that's because it was started by jo Bob Justman and Gene Roddenberry, who learned from the first show that you want to have a lighting setup that works no matter what show what show you're doing, and you only change the light to like yesterday's Enterprise, where it became dark in there. Um, I wasn't on stage when they were shooting, and I don't know what kind of decisions were made talking to the DP. Um, but, and I'm not saying this is what happened, but all it takes is someone like Patrick Stewart to say, this is really about us. The background <laughs> means nothing. Bring it down and focus on the actors. Yeah, I totally get that. I want to see... I thought the bridge looked better in the first episode of the second season. You could really make it out, you know. I, I feel like it's too dark. Um, but everyone makes creative decisions on the spur of the moment based on your partners and the actors you're working with. I mean, uh, maybe Jonathan thinks that, you know, we want to we wanna emphasize faces here. This show is more about character. I mean, I think probably that if they ended up going to another season, they'd probably brighten things up. I mean, those sets are really gorgeous. That bridge is beautiful. I mean, um, uh, I, I just adored being on that bridge. It is, just feels so real. But I think, you know, we're kind of missing some of it. And, you know, uh, whatever decisions were made to do that depended on what they were going for. Like yeah, I, I wonder if it has something to do with that. It's designed for a single story, whereas whereas the original show was designed for a setting to do every different type yeah. of story. Because it almost reminds me of the E. I always felt the E and the uniforms were perfectly designed for first contact. But then when you get to insurrection, they it's like it's almost like they didn't shift to another tone. And I love those uniforms and I love that shit. But it seemed like it was so specifically designed to tell that kind of story. You know. I never liked the E-Bridge. Um, it was the first hero bridge that was made out of spare parts. Really? Yeah. They were trying to, because they were always pushing it to do, do it for less and less and less. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, Herman had all these parts 
he pulled things out of storage and then sat down with John and said, well, we've got this, 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 and this. How can we put all this together and then connect it? And uh, my, my biggest complaint about the eBridge is I love the command stations in the center of the bridge should be really important. They get lost on the eBridge. You know what I mean? You look at the D bridge and it's this yeah. wonderful sweeping rail that enfolds the command crew and emphasizes them. And, you know, you so want to sit in that chair. Stephen Hawking asked to be lifted out of his wheelchair. I was there to be put in Picard's seat. But I just thought that the, uh, the seats are just like floating out there in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And it's like the two secondary seats on either side have these little like kitty table yeah, you know the children's table at Thanksgiving. TV tray. Their console. It just looks. I I was I never I never liked that bridge much. Uh, uh, love love the Defiant Bridge. Uh, love the original series Beyond Belief. Oh sure. Yeah, it, you don't get more iconic. Still looks amazing. I, I mean, I have to say that I haven't watched um, uh, uh, a Strange New Worlds, but what I do like about that bridge is that even though it's dramatically different. And obviously a different universe than Gurgis mm -hmm. It has enough of the colors and enough that, you know, and that sort of plastic feeling, you know. Um, I kind of like the way it looks. Um, um, and then there's like JJ's Bridge in the movies to me is like, what the hell are you doing? I mean, I went out to JPL shortly after that movie and we got onto this conversation and I said, I can't figure out what anything, the beauty of a Star Trek bridge is that if you look at it, you can suss it out, what everything does. You can say, okay, I fly from here, here's the weapons. I look at that bridge on, on the JJ ship and it just looks like spaghetti to me. Well, everything's a reflective surface too, so you can't quite focus on any objects. Yeah, well, I mean, I do like uh, reflection. And once again, we go with, uh, you know, uh, floor gate on uh, Picard, a lot of fans complaining about the shiny floors. Mm. Oh my God. I mean, it's just like some people see it as a sign of, what do you, you think we're stupid? You can't run on a floor like that, you know? And I'm thinking, why do you think that Starfleet would put a floor in a starship you can't run on? Yeah. First of all, I've been on those floors. You can run on them. We've seen them running on them. Why do you keep saying that you'd be slipping and sliding? We've never seen anyone do that ever. Have we, you know? I love the shiny floors and stuff reflect the beautiful lighting and, you know, of the consoles. And uh, they did the same thing, not as shiny, but on uh, the third season, Orville, I took the carpets off the bridge, put a hard floor surface down, and all of a sudden it was bouncing light from, you know, the panels and things. I thought it looked absolutely great. Um, you know, I mean, I'm from New York City and I... You know, I lived a, a long time in Manhattan and uh, I'm used to ultra shiny floors. Yeah. You know, skyscrapers usually have marble floors that are polished so that you can see yourself in them. I know very well that just because they're shiny doesn't mean you can't walk on them. And it's like I said, once again, why do you think Starfleet would ever put a pair of floors, put floors on a ship that you can't, you know, I mean, so it's like sometimes it's, Everybody wants to catch a mistake. And I love that. That's great. You should try and catch a mistake. But there's certain things where it's like, well, that's really, come on, shiny floor. Yeah, there's a difference. 
there's a difference between making yourself look smart and trying to make the other person look dumb. Exactly. Yeah. But Doug, you've already admitted that Starfleet is killing people to send them off to other places on a, <laughs> yeah. a transport or so. Yeah. Shiny floors, a, slippery a, floors are nothing. <laughs> I mean, look, uh, we've accepted, even Riker says that, you know, when his son says, oh, yeah, his positronic brain. And he's like, that is the same man he's always been. Well, it can't be, really. Mm-hmm. He's a robot now, right, or something, or some kind of, you know, I mean, he's. He's like an android. He's got a positronic matrix and all of that stuff. Is it still Patrick Stewart? But who cares? I mean, we disintegrated him in the transporter room 10,000 times already. You know? <laughs> I don't see why anybody has to die. That's To me, that's the biggest question. You just keep bringing them back. It's like Red Dwarf, you know? Remember? You know? That death is no longer the handicap it once was. <laughs> With the H on the forehead. I've always, I've never understood that. Why, why do you, why does anyone, yeah, I mean, oh, they died on the away mission. Wait, we've got their pattern in the buffer. Let's yeah. just, just bring well, that's what back. they did on Red Dwarf. Just yeah. keep 3D printing them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hey, listen, do you think that they're really going to be welding these ships together with guys in spacesuits? I don't think so. We're already printing rocket engines and it's only the early 21st century. Those, you know, that big cage around the Enterprise? You ever look at that and go, what is that? Just some fancy light holder? Yeah. You know, it's, I, I think it's a printing matrix. You know? Uh, of course it is. Uh, the, the whole idea of people in a spacesuit in a hostile environment welding, and I just never bought that. It's like you're building a starship the same way you built the Brooklyn Bridge. You know, I mean, I've had conversations with Michael Kuda because you know, we love this stuff and talk about it all the time, but uh, you would be using fractals for, uh, you know, as a construction technique where you're, you know, you're weaving a, you know, a uh, uh, structure to be strong, you know, in a gradient way to be strong where it needs to be and thins out and, you know, almost like, like webbing almost. Um, I, I, you know, I always had this crazy idea about the hull of a starship. I mean, it's like, um, I love the look of the original series. I thought the original series hull surface looks better, more futuristic than the motion picture surface. Because you look at the original series ship and you're like, what is it? Is it like porcelain? Mm-hmm. Is it glass of some kind? Is it, you know, uh, I mean, you look at, you know, the motion picture ship and it's obviously these are plates, metal plates and stuff. But I love the idea of something that you couldn't quite put your finger on. What is it? You know, always had this idea that, you know, I, well, maybe the hull is alive, could be alive. You know, they that it regenerates itself. And I, during World War II, they used to uh, make um, uh, runways on little islands all across the Pacific where they would go to the coral reef, dynamite it, sho- shovel up all the pulverized reef, bring it up on the island, and lay it out as a uh, runway and put, you know, steamrollers on it and roll it out and then water it every day so it wouldn't die. Hmm. You know, so it's like, you know, why not? You know, um, that, 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 you know, that um, uh, kind of uh, ceramic surface helps you slip in and out of warp. I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I, I just think that these things are more, they're more, they're grown more than anything. A lot of the ship is grown, you know. 
Um, I think that uh, that Roddenberry show after he died that came out of Canada, um, where they were growing buildings and things. I can't remember the name of it. Was it Earth Two? Uh, Earth Final Conflict? Maybe it had Earth in it. It did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Roddenberry had a thing about Earth. <laughs> Earth and gods. Yeah, I mean, he talked about what was it? Report from the Earth or something? Some title that I think that that he had come up with that I think probably would work great for my memoir. But <laughs> you know, letters from the Earth. Um, I'm blathering again. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, we we we're out of time, but this has been so much fun. Doug, I really appreciate all the insights and all the great stories. As I said. I've uh, been a long time follower, but I'm, I'm well, glad thanks. that we got a chance to connect. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I definitely urge everyone to follow you on social media. Um, how can they find you? Well, I'm on Facebook. That's that's about it, really. I used to yeah. have a blog, but uh, you know, it just became Facebook after a while. Um, yeah, that's pretty much, you know, the only place you could find me at this point. Yeah, but I, I appreciate how open you are on there. And I was really sorry to hear about Dorothy. Um, but it, I think it's, I think it's really inspiring about how you're showing the process you're going through. Well, you know, really um, valuable. I went through at first, I mean, it was the worst thing I've ever experienced in my life. And it wasn't like she just like died all of a sudden. It took her like 14 months Ugh. to die. And it was sheer misery. And she was the most wonderful, sweetest glamorous you know I, I she for to her all she wanted was for me to be happy you know we never had a fight after, wow. in 32 years not once not ever and she was just you know uh, so going through that was sheer hell and um you know they had therapists motion picture was sending therapists over and i got to hand it to them they kept after me but it just wasn't doing anything for me who are you mm -hmm. you know me wait a minute are you 24 years old <laughs> forget it <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate that you want to help me, but you just can't. I just found that going on Facebook and writing out my most innermost intimate thoughts about what was going on, posting pictures of her, telling stories about her. Um, you know, I realized that whenever I did that, I felt better for about an hour or so afterwards. And it really was the most therapeutic thing that I could have done for myself, you know. Uh, and and uh, and writing my memoir, you know, which is an outgrowth of that. Uh, but uh, yeah, um, I, I can't even explain how painful, mm. you know. I, now the other thing is that I found out that a lot of people were surprised that I was so open about it, you know. Especially a guy, you're supposed to keep everything inside. And I did never felt that ever. No, most guys would maybe make an announcement and never mention it ever. Again. Yeah, no, I everybody lived through it with me yeah. on Facebook. And I got to tell you, the fans were so good to me and they cared so much. Uh, and I, you know, I cried about Dorothy, but I also cried about the support, you know, uh, the kindness uh, from the fan community. You know, I had a guy from Celestis, the rocket company that sends, you know, like Gene Roddenberry's ashes into deep space and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And he was saying, um, you know, you should do that for Dorothy. And I'm thinking, um, that must be expensive. And he goes, well, it's around $12,000. And I'm thinking, well, if I had asked Dorothy if I could spend, if it would be okay with her if I spent $12,000 to shoot like a quarter of a cup of her ashes. Into <laughs> Are you crazy? <laughs> and um, uh, 
he said, well, you know, you could do a GoFundMe or, you know, thing. And I was like, I can't, I can't do that. I had an experience where I helped out some independent film and they raised a lot of money, you know, with my name. And then they turned out to be liars. And, and they never I made just, it. Huh? Did they ever make it? Uh, oh, they've been making it forever. As long uh, as one of those getting money for it, you know, yeah. and they have done some stuff in it, you know, but I, um, uh, but uh, where was I? Um, help me. Where was I on that? You were talking about the ashes. Oh yeah. So I, I said, I can't do it. I can't ask the fans for money. I, I said, I would never do that again. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought for a second and I said to him, I go, but you know, if you want to, you could do a GoFundMe page and I'll back it up. And he said, okay. And he opened a GoFundMe page and the fans raised the money in 24 hours. Wow. wow. So it's already done. Yeah. So it's happening. Oh, oh yeah. And I cried, you know, that kind of love and affection is like, wow. Um, so yeah, sometime later this year, I don't want to go into deep space. They have two missions. One is deep space where all the Star Trek people are going. Well, what good does that do me? Where is she? I have no idea where she is. They have a moon mission. That's where I want it. That's that's kind of beautiful because you can look yeah. at the moon. That's right. It will change the meaning of the moon for me for the rest of my life. And I'll always know exactly where she is, you know? So that's what I'm doing, the moon. Yeah, Michael Kuda did one thing that really I actually isn't, you know, I've been in such a, a uh, emotional state that I never know when I'm going to cry. Uh, I was never a weepy person, but now I could just like, like a dam bursting. You know, I used to say, how do actors cry? Well, if you felt grief and you could call it up, you could cry, you know. But uh, Mike had a picture of me and Dorothy looking at each other that he snapped some, somewhere. I hate me in the picture, but the picture became really important. Um he sent that picture to NASA and they beamed it up to the International Space Station. Oh, wow. And one of the astronauts took it and put it on an iPad and went into the cupola, you know, where all the windows are. You can look out and see the Earth and it's floating in front of the Earth, me and Dorothy. Oh, wow. And uh, they sent it back to Mike. Mike sent it to me over my phone. I was out to lunch. And when I opened it up and saw it, it was just like waterfall. It's just, oh, my God. Just so emotional it's amazing that you know so many people look at science fiction as an escape and not only have you made a living out of it but it's touched your life in so many ways oh god it wasn't for things like star trek you know you the international space station probably wouldn't have gotten involved it's space has touched your life in so many ways back oh my god well i mean it's like we've been you know me and mike and doroth and denise winters we could go to a shuttle launch see a shuttle go and be treated like celebrities. You know, if I go to JPL, I'm like a celebrity at JPL. These guys are really exploring the universe and, and you're excited to meet me. It's crazy. But the thing is that for a lot of them, Star Trek is what made them think about even doing this in the first place, you know? Uh, And it had, it's an, when you're a kid, especially, and a show where knowing science and being smart is actually an important part of the show. You know, people learn their lessons and, you know, I mean, I'll watch shows sometimes where the the characters never learn their goddamn lesson. They're always an idiot, you know, 
I mean, I, what was it? Um, and of course, what would you expect from these people? But um, uh, like Sons of Anarchy started off like really terrific. Mm-hmm. But then you just found out they never learned a lesson. Never they learned. They always had to be the same characters for just every got dumber and dumber and dumber. Right yeah. to the very end. <laughs> like, it's like Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson started out as just a bad dad. Yeah, yeah. Homer. And then, then the writer said he became a smart dog. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a beloved character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Doug, uh, real quick, since you touched on this, if you, with all the people who inspired you and helped you along the way, what is the the one piece of advice you would give to the next generation that look at you and say, hey, I want to be able to do things like Doug Drexler did? What's that, What's the piece of advice you would give them? Well, you know, I mean, it really comes down to not letting anyone tell you you can't do it because people will tell you that all the time. And I, I find that if someone... Like if you draw a picture and they go, oh, you can't draw. I, do not listen. Do not. They have no idea what they're talking about. Most likely they just want to derail you because they're jealous or they, you know, uh, you're onto something if people are attacking the thing you're doing. You know, everything that was that worked and was successful for me, I was made fun of about and, and treated as if I was, you know, insane. I mean, even my father as I was a kid and he, he knew different after that uh, later on because he went with me to the Academy Awards. <laughs> but um, he used to say when I was, you know, 12, the show was still on the air and my walls were covered with magazine articles about Star Trek and even painted part of my wall, like part of the bridge. And, you know, and he said to me, if you put half as much effort into your schoolwork as you do that mm. television show, you'd be okay. And so <laughs> he lived to see that that was a bad piece of advice. <laughs> <laughs> he used to tell people, whenever Doug has a tough decision to make, he comes to me and asks me what I think and then does the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's almost like that Seinfeld episode where uh, 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 um, George. George realizes that if he just does the opposite of what he thinks he should do, and like became another person after that, you know, yeah. getting a girlfriend and <laughs> working for the Yankees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, there's that one. Um, there's an episode. I know we're not here to talk about Seinfeld, but there was an episode where George uh, had under his desk turned into a little apartment. Yes, a yes. bed. Right. And he got stuck under there one day because Steinbrenner came in and sat down at the table. Well, uh, we had a. Uh, uh, one of the lead gaffers on the show, Phil Jacobson, used to come up to the art department and wanted me to make labels for all his lights and his, you know, cases. And and I heard him come in. And so I went under my desk. And he came in and was like, where's Dougie? And then he says, oh, I just had to run down the stage. And so Phil says, well, I'll just wait for <laughs> and he sits at my desk and I'm underneath there with his legs you know he's there yeah. right, right there like this far from my nose and Denise knows I'm under there and he stayed for about 20 minutes I didn't <laughs> and, and then he finally gave up and left and I came out from under the desk <laughs> we had a lot of fun we still do well Doug thank you so much for for coming on and, and oh, sharing your pleasure. stories. Hey, listen, you know, it's great to, you know, um, podcasts, I, I love doing them, but when you have people who, you know, can laugh and stuff like that, and, you know, that makes all the difference. You know? Yeah. Uh, and this has been so much fun. This is, uh, like I said, this is everything I hoped it would be. 
getting to talk to you one on one. Uh, oh, well, thanks. Are we going to release this as a movie? We should release it. Yeah, I think movie. we should put this on YouTube. And in <laughs> fact, the facial expressions and everything, yeah, exactly. the gesticulating. <laughs> and we can see the bird. People need to see the bird. Exactly. That's true. The star of the show, anyway. Yes. Thanks again to Doug Drexler. Those were really great stories. Uh, it's one of the reasons I love doing this podcast. If you want to follow me, I'm at Not In My Book on Twitter and Instagram. That is the official Captain of Comics social networking feed. You can also go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Comics for all the news that's fit to geek. And don't forget, you can follow Elliot Serrano at Elliot Serrano on the various social media. We will talk to you next week.